from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 8th. Today, lucrative but risky corporate loans, Israel's upcoming election, and why Japan is bringing back commercial whaling. In 2017, when we were hearing all these reports about how strong the economy was, I started to get a little suspicious. It was almost like a spidey sense, you know, like when things are too quiet in your house. You know, where's the dog? You know, uh, where's the kids? (laughs) This is Damien Paletta. I cover the White House, Congress, regulatory agencies, finance, money, anything having to do with the economy. Damien reported on the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. And recently, he started to notice an eerie similarity between what happened then and what's happening now. You know, obviously the circumstances are different, but a lot of the same things are happening in terms of, you know, loosening the standards on what the regulators scrutinize, you know, a huge kind of snowball of um, risky loans and no one really looking to see what would happen if everything kind of goes bad at once. Back in 2006 and 2007, that snowball of risky loans was the subprime mortgage crisis. Now, Damien says that he's seeing something similar, with banks and financial institutions issuing more than a trillion dollars to businesses in what are called leveraged loans. A leveraged loan is a loan made to a company that is over-leveraged. And by over-leveraged, it means the company has way more debt than it brings in through income. So a leveraged loan is a loan that a company might not have the capacity to repay. It's risky. Hmm. It's not like a company that has a tremendous amount of income coming in. It's a company a lot of times that's on the rocks financially and is on the brink of going out of business. So it's kind of like a Hail Mary loan. Exactly. Do you have examples of what those companies are? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about companies, name brands you know, J.Crew, PetSmart, a lot of retail companies, but also healthcare companies and energy companies that you might not have heard of. Buffalo Wild Wings, Arby's. There's a lot of companies that you shop at or pass by every day. That have these loans? Absolutely, yeah. Why would banks want to give loans to companies that are kind of struggling? Companies that are struggling, you can charge more money to because it's a riskier loan. And at a time like now when interest rates are low, banks are doing what's called chasing yield. They're trying to get more income, more return on their investment. So if they can make a mortgage and get 1% back or make a leveraged loan and try to get 10% back, they're going to sort of chase after that money. But what happens if these companies that these banks are giving loans to, if they can't pay back those loans? The loans go into default and then the bank's in trouble. But what the banks have done is they make the loan and then they're selling the loan off. So they've originated the loan, like sort of like a mortgage. They make the mortgage and then they kick it off to some investor, hedge fund, insurance fund, pension fund. So they have kind of wiped their hands of the loan. They don't have the risk. They've made it and gotten rid of it. So some banks will say, well, what's the big deal? Even if the loan goes bad, it's not my problem. But if the thing that we found a decade ago was that if a lot of these loans go bad, then it 
does become a problem. Absolutely. And who's to say that if the loan goes bad, it's not the bank's problem? Who's to say the person who bought the loan isn't going to try to sue the bank or try to push the loan back on the bank. There's all sorts of domino effects that happen, we've found. The default rate on these loans is really low right now because the economy is doing well and businesses are are getting the income they need to be able to pay the loans back. But what happens, as we've seen, is interest rates go up, the economy slows down, it becomes harder. Once one company can't pay the loan back, you know, there's kind of this like contagious effect. And, you know, a lot of companies can't pay it back together. And we've never been in a situation like that before with these loans. So right now, banks are just allowed to give as many of these loans out as they want? So in in 2013, regulators started to get pretty concerned about this. They thought... Regulators with the federal government. Yeah, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. They regulate the big U.S. banks. Citibank, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo. Trillion-dollar banks. And they started to get concerned because they saw banks were sort of chasing this yield. They were making loans that in past times would have been considered pretty dicey. And so they sent a warning to the banks and said, you know, we're watching you guys. We're watching this sector closely. Here's some parameters we want you to follow. And there's going to be times we're going to tell you to knock it off. And sure enough, they told a couple banks to knock it off. And the banks got spooked. They pulled back. They, they, the um, quantity of these loans fell, you know, quite a bit in like 2014, 2015. Because the federal regulators were basically like, this is too risky. You guys are doing this too much. We don't want to get into any any problems down the road. So right. like we get to tell you, you're not allowed to give out many of these loans. Exactly. So remember, this is just five years after the financial crisis. There's a lot of, you know, still open scars. And the regulators have the ability, the bank regulators have the ability to go into banks and say, okay, show me your loans. Let's see what you're making. And they found through a review of these loans that a lot of them, they call them weak, but really they're garbage. I mean, the borrowers would come in with like a pamphlet. Oh, look, like I'm making a new amusement park. Um, It's going to, all the kids are going to be eating cotton candy. The bank's like, sure, okay, that sounds good. We'll give you like $10 million. And and some of these loans are for like $2 billion. And so... And not necessarily with much evidence that they're going to eventually be able to pay back. Exactly. Exactly. So regulators tried to crack down. The bankers want bananas because they don't like, you know, regulators breathing down their neck. So there was this real tension there building up ahead of the 2016 election. So 2016, the election happens. And then what starts happening to these loans? So there's a big sea change in Washington regarding these loans. First, Republicans in Congress made clear that they want the leverage lending guidance to be nullified. And at the same time, you have President Trump putting in new regulators at these agencies who believe that the leverage lending rules are making it harder for the economy to grow. And they also want, you know, to sort of back off. And so simultaneously, you know, the two big institutions, the executive branch and the legislative branch, are kind of in alignment that these guidelines are hurting the economy and they back off. And then the banks, you know, really start pumping out billions and billions of dollars of these loans without any review or scrutiny about what it might mean to the economy once the loans start to turn. And you've been talking to a lot of the people who were behind the scenes when a lot of this has been happening, people, you know, bankers and congressional aides and federal regulators. What do they say about what they were seeing at this time? Here's what struck me, especially having covered the banking industry before and during the last crisis. They have no idea what will happen when these loans start to go bad. Okay, in the economy, there's these things called credit cycles. The economy is doing well. You're able to get access to loans. Then the economy turns. People start 
you know, falling behind on their auto loans or their credit cards and the credit cycle turns. When the credit cycle turns, it becomes harder to get an auto loan, right? Because people think you might not be able to repay it. That same thing happens with lending to corporations too, but it can be even worse because those loans can default at a higher rate. And I talked to congressional aides, regulators, all these different people, and they have no idea what will happen. One thing that happened after the last financial crisis is that a lot of these big banks were bailed out, that even though their risky decision-making had, had led in large part to the crisis, that, that taxpayer money helped keep them afloat. Is there a concern that that has kind of helped them continue to use the same risky practices? One of the big question marks from the financial crisis of 2008-2009 is what would happen the next time the economy turns. Because there was a tremendous amount of taxpayer support that bailed out the banks. Billions and billions of dollars went into very troubled companies and helped prevent a collapse of the U.S. economy. And there was a fear then, and I think there's a fear now, that this kind of moral hazard is baked into the economy. This idea that if something really bad happens, you know, someone will bail us out again. We'll have Congress rush to the rescue or the Fed will change the rules or the White House will, you know, kind of break the glass and and come riding in and stop it. And so there's this fear that it has incentivized risky behavior on the on the part of banks and other investors. As much as people say they won't let it happen, as much as regulators and lawmakers say they're not going to be there to catch you, I think a lot of bankers don't believe it. And we won't know, unfortunately, until it happens. Damien Paletta covers finance and economic policy for The Post. On Tuesday, Israelis head to the election polls. For Netanyahu, everything is at stake. Loveday Morris is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. If Prime Minister Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu is re-elected, he is expected to become the country's longest-running prime minister. But it's not clear that that's going to happen. No one really knows what might happen. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's Israel's longtime prime minister, he's been prime minister now for a total of more than 13 years. He's fighting for a fifth term in office. He's doing that from under a cloud of corruption allegations and against a new candidate. He's a political newcomer, but he's not a total newcomer. Netanyahu's challenger is Benny Gantz a former chief of staff for the Israeli military. In a country where everyone's children go into the military, he's already a known figure, but he's not known in politics. And he's the main contender. Loveday says that one thing that Netanyahu has is his relationship with the U.S., and specifically his relationship with President Trump. 
under the Obama administration, you could maybe say that Israeli-US relations were possibly at an all-time low. Um, there was a very fractious relationship. You saw Bibi going to the US and speaking against the Iran deal. Um, there's a huge turnaround with Trump. Netanyahu says this is the most pro-Israel administration that there's ever been. He's never had a better friend in the White House. Mr. President, over the years, Israel has been blessed to have many friends who sat in the Oval Office. But Israel has never had a better friend than you. The fact that Netanyahu and Trump have such a good relationship, how has that played out for Israeli voters? I think it seemed pretty positively here. I mean, for most Israelis, they look at the U.S.-Israel relationship under Trump and they see all of the pro-Israel decisions. There was the U.S. decision to recognize Jerusalem. Most recently, there was the U.S. recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Now, that came very recently in the middle of an election campaign, was seen a little bit as possibly uh, the Trump administration giving a boost to Netanyahu. Like the fact that Trump made this announcement was basically to help his friend out. Yeah, for sure. And he, even before that, people were looking at White House statements and the decision to send Pompeo here also just before elections. And Trump is popular here. Um, I was talking to one Israeli pollster, actually, who's just done a survey of Israeli attitudes towards Trump, and he's seen very favorably here. Israelis really like President Donald Trump. He has two very kind of Israeli characteristics that Israelis respect and feel home at. And that's, of course, first his chutzpah. He's very uh, brazen in what he does. And he doesn't care, you know, whether someone is insulted, not insulted. He says it, you know, like he sees it. I mean, there are other issues, obviously, on the Israeli electorate's mind. But they see that strong relationship with the U.S., as a positive. And it's something Bibi's really been pushing during his campaign also. There are campaign posters up in Jerusalem of Trump and Netanyahu together. So it's definitely something that he's been trying to highlight and showcase that, that he is the person that can win, win these concessions from the U.S. And he's the only person that can do that. What is your sense of what Israeli voters are looking for in this election? I think this time there's actually maybe some more indecisiveness than previously. A lot of Israelis, I think, do want to change from Netanyahu if you look at, if you look at the surveys. But then a lot of Israelis also see him as the best candidate to be prime minister. So there's a bit of con contradiction there. I mean, I think that's one of Netanyahu's great strengths is to have been able to portray himself as this person who is so essential for Israel. If you look at the polls, there are some questions about how accurate the polls are. Gantz is coming out ahead on a lot of them, although there's still the question as to who can actually form a government and a coalition. But maybe given all the controversy surrounding Netanyahu, it's probably more surprising that Gantz isn't further ahead. So you mentioned that Netanyahu is facing allegations of corruption. What is he facing? Netanyahu's been dogged by corruption allegations really since 
since he first came to office. I mean, the, he was first investigated back in 1997. Um, so it's not really something new, but this time they have progressed further than ever before. In February, the attorney general recommended that Netanyahu be indicted in three um, corruption cases. Two of those deal with Netanyahu's dealings with the media, actually basically cutting deals for favorable media coverage, changing um, regulations to benefit newspaper owners. Hmm. The other one involves gifts, political favors in return for gifts, uh, cigars and champagne, that kind of thing. You've reported that a lot of people have described Netanyahu as something of a political Houdini, even though he has seen these allegations of corruption come up against him again and again. Netanyahu always seems to survive them and has this ability to get voters to look past that and think that he is this kind of essential leader for the country. Well, over the years, he's just had an amazing, amazing ability to be able to bounce back when people people have written him off. But actually, don't forget that he's also, he has lost elections. He's lost as many elections as he's won. He just keeps coming back. He lost in 1999. He lost against Zippy Livni, but actually she couldn't form a coalition, so he became prime minister then. But he's been out of office twice in the past, I think people forget that when they talk about Netanyahu's staying power, that he's, he's actually, you know, he's certainly lost elections in the past. One of the satirical shows here portrays Netanyahu as this Houdini-like character, almost being able to slip out of chains. But we'll have to wait and see if um, he manages that this time. Loveday Morris is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. In the election on Tuesday, Israelis will cast ballots for political parties to fill parliament. After those results are announced, the prime minister will be selected based on which parties come together to form a majority coalition. And now, one more thing. Japan last December pulled out of the International Whaling Commission and said it was going to restart commercial whale hunting. The decision was deeply unpopular because it broke a 30-year global moratorium on whaling. But the big caveat of that decision was that Japan would no longer be able to hunt for whales in the Antarctic. It would hunt commercially for whales, but only within its own waters, only 200 miles off Japan's coast. Simon Denyer is the Post's bureau chief for Japan and the Koreas. Japan had been hunting them in the name of research, which means it would kill the whales, measure the whales in various ways, and then it would chop up the whales and sell the meat to help fund the research, with a view to eventually start commercial whaling when whale stocks recovered. But in the end, the rest of the world or a lot of other countries weren't prepared to do that, so Japan just went its own way. So I travelled to Shimonoseki, which is a whaling city in western Japan. And the reason I went there was that the whaling fleet was returning from its last ever whaling trip to the Antarctic. We spoke to one family, Toro Asaka, 
He told us how the crews had reacted when they heard the news. This was their last Antarctic whale hunt, and they don't know if the whaling industry has a future. They're worried that their livelihoods will be affected because there aren't as many whales in Japan's own waters as there are in the Antarctic. But I have to say there is another side to the whaling story that you perhaps don't always hear in the West. I think that it fuels a sense of nationalism here and it probably makes ordinary people think, well, why is the West telling us what to do? Most Japanese people don't eat whale meat. Most young people don't eat whale meat. The whaling industry would like to see whale meat reintroduced into school lunches so that young people get the taste for whale meat. But you have to ask yourself, to what purpose? You know, why are they keeping it alive? Why are they so determined to keep it alive when the rest of the world has moved on? That is something that conservatives in Japan really want to keep the culture alive. Simon Denier is the bureau chief for Japan and the Koreas. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.